Hey, it's Zach reminding you to listen to a couple of our other basketball podcasts. Get the inside scoop on the biggest NBA news and hear from the stars on and off the court on the Woj pod, of course. And check out Jay Billis, Lafonso Ellis, and Seth Greenberg on Bald Men on Campus for an all-access pass inside the world of college basketball. That's the Woj pod and Bald Men on Campus. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And now, the Low Post. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Here's the super-sized Low Post podcast to get you through what I hope is not too horrific travel. Thanksgiving is actually a useful time to sort of take stock of where we are in the season. We're about a quarter of the way through. We're beginning to learn a lot of stuff about a lot of teams, and it's been a very interesting season. I think entering the season, the general assumption, and my assumption at least, was that the Bucks and the Nets were the two best teams, head and shoulders of everyone else. That was before we knew a lot of stuff, that four Milwaukee starters were about to miss considerable time. Kyrie Irving refused to get vaccinated, and that issue does not appear to be showing any signs of resolution now for the Nets. And just how far behind James Harden was in terms of conditioning or hamstring or whatever it is. In four months, when the real games start, those two may still look like the two best teams. So that does seem far less likely than it did when the season began for a whole bunch of reasons. The Nets, the Nets, not a lot of buzz about the Nets. They're kind of sneakily trucking along. 11-2 11-2 and two in their last 13 games. Number one in the East. I think that has to be encouraging. They're fine. Harden, he's alternating games where he looks like his old self with that untouchable first step just blown by people and a desire to like actually try to score points instead of just throwing his limbs in every direction to try and draw fouls. And then other games, the next game it seems like it's like, oh, geez, something, he lost a step again. So we'll see. Uh, but what's clear already, I think, given how the Nets have played, and how some other teams in the league will get to have played, is that if Kyrie's not coming back, the Nets need peak James Harden to win the whole thing, and probably just to get through these. The rest of the roster is kind of disappointed in the aggregate. LaMarcus Aldridge is not going to shoot 60% all season. On the flip side, Blake Griffin, 9 of 56 on threes. 16%. That's a real stat. He's missed 22 threes in a row and didn't play in the second half of their win. Uh, Monday night against Cleveland. Nets are also, if Kyrie's not coming back, I I think they're a team to keep an eye on at the trade deadline, particularly with Nick Claxton, who's a free agent after this year and hasn't played uh, in forever due to a a non-COVID-related illness. I I think they would try to make a win-now move for sure. In Milwaukee, as long as everyone comes back healthy, I think all these injuries may end up being a gift to the Bucs. Everyone's had to stretch themselves, including Giannis, who's making strides as a playmaker, and he's right there with Draymond Green for Defensive Player of the Year. Teams are shooting 46% at the rim with Giannis as the nearest defender. That's that's really, really low. He might legitimately be the best rim protector in the league, up to and including Rudy Gobert. Grayson Allen has stepped up. Pat Connaughton is shooting 40% on tons of threes. He's a real 3 and D guy now. Bobby Portis just continues to kill it. When they get everyone back and in tune and in condition, I'm smelling, smelling an absolutely ferocious scorched earth run across the league. These guys, the Bucks, they might still be the safest pick to win the championship, to repeat, even if they don't have the P.J. Tucker type to like guard Durant and beef up those Giannis at center lineups that are so good. Please, please do not look up Semi Ojale's three-point percentage or remember that I ever said he might emerge as an X-Factor. It's not going well. But so far... The three best teams in the league in terms of net rating and record are all in the West. The Warriors, who are the best story in the league, the Jazz, and the Suns. The Miami Heat actually have the third best point differential in the league just ahead of Phoenix. They're 11-6. and They've been a little uneven. They're resting guys here. They've had some injuries. They've established themselves for sure. Miami has established themselves as a real contender to win the East. I'm not sure 
I'm quite ready to anoint the Warriors 15 and 2 as undisputed championship favorites. Even with Klay Thompson looming, a guy cannot wait for Klay Thompson. He is just a baller. He's everything that's right about the NBA. I'm not sure the roster is is quite this good, even though I was higher than just about everybody on them before the season. I did not see this kind of start coming, but they're damn good and they're they're for sure inner circle contenders. Phoenix, 13 straight wins, 13. For the record, I predicted last week on NBA Today that their streak would reach 14 and come to an end against the Knicks in Madison Square Garden on Friday. That just sort of seems weird enough. The MSG crowd will be going crazy. They might also boo the starters if the Phoenix Suns score the first basket of the game and it's 2-0 Phoenix. That's how bad the Knicks starters have been. Anyway, the conversation about Phoenix's run to the finals being a fluke, that should be over. Throw it in the trash. The real conversation we should be having about the Suns is whether they are just flat out the best team in the NBA. They're seventh in offense, third in defense, and you can tell me they've played an easy schedule, and I do not care. They were the best team against winning teams last season. They are good at everything. Everything. Absolutely rock solid. They're only quote-unquote bad at offensive rebounding because they choose to be bad at it for their transition defense. They're awesome inner circle contenders. Utah. Maybe only the Lakers face more pressure than the Jazz, and the Lakers are a total mess. We've talked enough about the Lakers. The Jazz are are number one in offense by a freaking mile, despite kind of not shooting that great from three. Utah's last four playoff defeats, they've all left a bitter taste in the Jazz mouth. The first two were both to the Rockets, were the result of their offense failing. They just couldn't make jump shots. I think we've reached the point now where that should never happen again. They're too good. They have too many options. They're a machine. They have mastered their system. The only scheme that has any chance against them is switching everything like the Clippers did, and they're well-versed in in going against that. They know how to do that. They know how to slip screens. I'd like to even see Rudy Gobert get a a few token post-ups against switches just to see how he looks doing it. I wrote that before the season because he looks so good for France, even against Team USA in the Olympics. Their last two playoff losses to the Nuggets in the bubble and the Clippers last season were actually about their vaunted defense falling apart. And that's worth watching. The Jazz are only 11th in defense. That sounds like good, but for them, it's not good. And it's not because opponents are shooting great from three or anything like that. It's a lot of little things. They're just losing a little kind of fringe battles night after night after night. They still allow all the right shots. They allow tons of mid-range jumpers, nothing at the rim, no threes. They don't force any turnovers. That's that's just how they play. That's not That's not new. They're down to 10th in opponent free throw rate. They're usually top three. What's interesting is that they're they're allowing about the same number of free throws. It's just that free throws are down overall. And so by allowing the same number, they've actually fallen towards average. It's actually an interesting discussion to be had about whether not fouling, which is a skill, it's a teachable skill, something the Jazz are great at. Is that less valuable now that fouls are down? They're 14th in defensive rebounding. Again, that's not like them. Rudy Gobert has rebounded 40% of opponent misses. That's on pace to be the highest figure for any player ever in any season, better than any Dennis Robin season. What that really means, though, is that the other four starters are not really carrying their weight. Rudy Gay just came back, and I'm starting to wonder if we all kind of missed the point of the Rudy Gay signing. He was like the killer replacement for George Niang off the bench in that Utah death lineup 
I don't know what to call this lineup. It's it's the hybrid Mike Conley, Jordan Clarkson, Joe Ingles, Rudy Gay, Gobert lineup, the hybrid starter bench lineup. Eric Pascal was playing the Rudy Gay spot for a lot of the season. Can't, it can't be the death lineup. That's taken. This one also plays too slow to be the death lineup. I feel I, I want to pitch slow jam lineup because of the Jazz thing, but we anyway we need something better than that. But maybe the point of Rudy Gay is not any of that as much as it is to be a potential defensive upgrade in the playoffs in their main lineups, in Utah's main lineups, maybe take a few minutes here from Boyan Bogdanovich, a few minutes there from Jordan Clarkson, maybe even Joe Ingles on nights he looks slow. Maybe that, I mean, Rudy Gay's not a stopper, but he's long and he's smart and he's kind of better than those guys. I wonder if maybe that's more the role that they envisioned. Anyway, the rest of the West is about as projected. There is a six-team tier, six teams fighting for spots four to six, the last three non-play-in spots. Dallas, Portland, Lakers, Clippers, Denver, and the Grizzlies, who lose to Minnesota by 41 night and then beat the Jazz on the road on the other night. Good luck if you can figure them out. The only mild surprise is the Lakers being in that tier instead of the Warriors. Uh, as for Denver, oof, we're going to know more about Michael Porter Jr.'s back, I think, later this week. We'll see what happens. You know, there have been reports that they fear he's going to be out for a long time. We'll see. But this is why Jamal Murray's injury last year was such a was such an absolute crusher because you just never know how many chances you have at winning it. And Denver absolutely had one last year after the Aaron Gordon trade. They were rolling. They were good enough. Now, there's an outside chance. There was and is an outside chance. They could reopen that window this season depending on when Jamal Murray comes back, how he looks and all that other stuff, but any long-term absence for Porter obviously nukes that. Next, we had four teams challenging for the 10th spot, the last play-in spot. Sacramento, Minnesota, New Orleans, and San Antonio. Well, New Orleans is seven games behind the 10th seed in the loss column already. Seven games. Even if Zion came back today, that's a lot to make up. The Spurs are 4-12. and their scoring margin says they're a little better than that, but nothing about watching them day to day makes you think they've got some big run in them coming. The Kings, of course, are a dumpster fire of chaos. We'll talk about them in a second, but they are 11th by default, 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 default. The two sweetest words in the English language, according to Homer Simpson. But the 10th spot is Minnesota's for the taking. Don't look now, but the Wolves have won four straight. I'm almost afraid to talk about it. Before the season, John Krasinski of The Athletic, who covers the Wolves like no one else, we did a podcast where we expressed some optimism about Minnesota's play-in chances. Like, why should they not be better than the Spurs, the Pelicans, and the Kings? Why is Carl Anthony Towns not the best player among that group of teams? And John Krasinski ended the podcast by and my, I'm all, all, almost my spine is shivering. He ended the podcast saying every time he feels the Wolves are on the verge of something good, something bad happens out of nowhere. And literally the next day, the Wolves fired Gerson Rosas, their president of basketball operations, for a whole bunch of unpleasant reasons. The very next day. But the Wolves are better than the Spurs, the Pelicans, or the Kings. And they should be, even though D'Angelo Russell is shooting like 38%. Malik Beasley is a little lost in the offense, and Towns never gets to shoot enough. Uh, and he throws these horrible sidearm passes all over the freaking gym whenever teams double-team him. But they're good. And their new starting five, are you ready for this? Their new starting five with Patrick Beverly and Jared Vanderbilt at the four is plus 85 in 87 minutes. A point a minute. It's insane. Vanderbilt is an absolute menace to society on the offensive glass. He's just pogo sticking over people, taking balls out of people's hands. That lineup has rebounded almost half of Minnesota's misses. 
That is crazy. It has the best net rating of every lineup in the league that's played at least 50 minutes by like double the net rating of the next lineup. Obviously, that won't last. It's just kind of fun. Jaden McDaniels is showing signs of life. I, this team should win the 10th seed at worst. They should be in the play-in. And honestly, the biggest question after that is, would you hang a banner for making the play-in tournament? I wouldn't, I, you know, it's been, it's been a dry period of time for the Wolves. The Thunder right now are technically 11th, and they've been frisky. got a bunch of comeback wins, but they've lost five of six, and their point differential suggests they'll end up at the bottom with the Rockets, who, by the way, are absolutely unwatchable, just totally unwatchable. They're a turnover machine. They have zero structure. The only redeeming thing is Alper and Shengun and all the crazy, delightful, spinning, no-look passes, pump fakes, hook shots, all the stuff he does. Christian Wood, this team so badly needs a veteran to set the tone and to set the culture. And Christian Wood has just leaned in all the wrong directions on the floor. There's a, there's a softness to his game on, on both ends of the floor, defensively, offensively. You just don't feel his impact at all. For a guy who I thought was maybe making a run in an all-star team before he got hurt last year, everything has, has receded the wrong way. You just don't you – know you know it when you see it. You know when you watch a game, you're like, I felt that guy on every possession. You don't feel Christian Wood at all. They also need a point guard. DJ Augustine is coming off the bench. He can't get by. He can't get by, like, the Jordan statue outside the United Center. Which raises the question, why can't John Wall play? Like, why is John Wall just sitting there slouching on the bench every game? What What is the point of this? It's embarrassing. It's a charade. Just send him away like the Thunder did with Al Horford. The Rockets could actually use John Wall. I don't get why he's just sitting there not playing. Why is this not a discussion? I understand both parties came to some kind of mutual agreement. He wants to be traded. They, he doesn't. There, there's no buyout yet to be had. There's no trade to be had. So I sit him so he stays healthy. But like, I, I, why is it really just forbidden that John Wall should play basketball? I guess maybe the Rockets are worried to help them win. I mean, the Rockets are one and sixteen. I think. I think the window on the Rockets winning too many games is probably shut. The East. The East is even more muddled. God, I love the East. 11 teams are 500 or better. Atlanta's 9-9 on a five-game winning streak. Starting to look like themselves. Playing bad teams at home, it turns out, is helpful. Charlotte appears to be real. Just beat the Wiz for the second time in a week. Philly hanging around. Starting five backups and beat the Kings with five backups. Embarrassing for Sacramento. Boston is on fire. They found their footing defensively. They're putting the clamps on everyone. The Pacers, every other game, they threaten to look kind of competent and organized, and then they don't the next game. They're Team TBD. I have no idea what to think of them. Right now, bottom line is the gap between second in the East and the play-in is razor thin. The Bulls are back holding that number two spot. The Wiz are right below them at number three. They're both outperforming expectations so far, even the Bulls. They both lost last night, and they're both super fun and interesting to talk about. You know, how sustainable are they? Are they for real? Are they going to be in the top six? If so, who's falling out? It's still early, and that's a topic I want to talk about, among many others, with the great Kevin Arnovitz. So let's bring in Kevin to talk Bulls, Wizards, and a lot of other stuff. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. 
Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's macy's.com slash gift finder. All right, let's bring in the one and only Kevin Arnovitz to talk about a whole bunch of interesting stuff, including the aforementioned Bulls and Wizards, two of the surprise-ish teams of the East. Mr. Arnovitz, happy Thanksgiving, and how are you? I'm well. Happy Thanksgiving to you. I love Thanksgiving. Absolutely love Thanksgiving. Top five holiday easily. And even though I don't like pumpkin pie, I'm anti-pumpkin pie. Don't get it. Never got it. Not a fan. A lot of beige food. And I, I, I mean, I also, I have sort of a minority take on turkey which is turkey's dumb like nobody else anywhere else in the world maybe canada eats turkey you know why because it's dry um it's i I, it's we we need to let this one go i will eat i will if i could eat just stuffing for thanksgiving if that was socially acceptable just a big bowl of stuffing i would that's the highlight for me okay let's before we get into all the fun team building things that we're going to talk about the main event of the NBA week was obviously LeBron James punching Isaiah Stewart in the face and then a bloody Isaiah Stewart taking three separate runs at LeBron, tackling people, breaking tackles, bum-rushing his own coaches. It was quite a show by Isaiah Stewart, who was suspended for two games. LeBron was suspended for one game, the first suspension, I believe, in LeBron's career. but He was ejected one time before. K.A., were you watching the game? What was your reaction? Did you think, did you expect this level of penalization for the two of them? And what do you think of it? I'm always bad at, at sentencing. Like, I never know. Like, I actually thought, are they going to give Stewart, like, five games? Like, like, like or, or two games per run at? So, six? Like, uh, you know, so I'm never good at that. It was a cheap shot. And uh, it's hard to judge Stewart because I have never been hit by an elbow from LeBron James. And I look, we see these cheap shots all the time, but only occasionally do they look like the De La Hoya Cesar Chavez fight. I mean, it was bloody. The thing I, you know, I was hoping was if Stewart had run out when he did, camped himself in the Lakers locker room, would not move. Like what happens? Like, is there just a standoff? I, I don't know, but I can tell you that was the first time I don't. I think that was the first time I had ever heard on one of the broadcasts. I think it was the Lakers broadcast, which, by the way, the Lakers broadcast just first class propaganda job from Jump Street. Isaiah Stewart's face was bleeding, and there was contact from this, and that all sorts of passive voice was involved. And Isaiah Stewart was the villain immediately. But it was the first time I had ever heard the Lakers are being told to watch out for a player coming out the other side of the tunnel. I love every time we get one of these tunnel things, like the Clippers-Rockets one was the best one so far, where the Rockets allegedly tried some subterfuge to like knock on the front door and distract the Clippers so that some other Rockets could go in the back way or something. I, I love everything about that. But look, I'll tell you this. 
Don't mess with Isaiah Stewart. Isaiah Stewart is not here to fake fight you. And by the way, all you know what you know what sin he committed? He played hard. He plays hard all the time. If you want to, if you're on the, and I'm saying this was the case with the Lakers, if you're on the second night of a back-to-back and the last thing you want is like, I got to run the floor hard or like this dude's actually going to try to box me out on free throw rebounds, like free throw rebounds, that guy's an 85% shooter. Can we just like chill for a, for a second here? I'm tired. Like Isaiah Stewart is going to have none of it. His elbow is going to hit you in the throat or in the chest because that's what boxing out can do sometimes. And he will, wa- and that was not fake. Isaiah Stewart wanted to fight. And it took a whole army of people to hold him off. And like, look, LeBron hit LeBron. You can argue. You you can argue to me. LeBron didn't mean to hit him in the face with a closed fist. I can believe that. LeBron wound up and struck some area of Isaiah Stewart's upper body on purpose. Could it have been his chest if Isaiah Stewart had been in a different posture? Maybe. But it was his face, and he wound up, and he deserves to get suspended. And there was a lot of skepticism, as you probably heard. Well, you know, Lakers-Knicks, TNT, Tuesday, or whatever day. Uh, is really good, really going to do it? And, well, they did it. Yeah, and, and what's a shame here is I feel like this is the NBA world's introduction to Stewart. He was on my first team all-rookie ballot last year. Um, I don't know that there's a player who more quickly went from not knowing how to play NBA basketball to basically being a functional player. Um, the staff that's worked with him has absolutely loved him. Um, he takes a ton of pride in how he plays. I mean, you said it. He does not come to screw around. Um, and, like, here's the thing. They don't even give this guy the ball. He screams. He rebounds. He ta- you know, He's going to box out, as you said, LeBron James on a successful free throw. Um, and no matter how little they give him the ball, he plays that much harder. And so I'm, I'm kind of sad because – no one watches Detroit, and, I, and that's explainable. But I don't like that this is the first introduction to Isaiah Stewart. Would, you know, essentially, as you said, kind of running the bowels of the arena in Detroit. Um, you know, and hiding in lockers, and who the hell knows what he's doing back there, awaiting LeBron James's arrival. Um, but he's—I I, you know I love he, the player. Love the player. You know what he should have done? The the clothes hamper. That's what he should have done. Jump in the clothes hamper, cover himself up with a bunch of dirty clothes. Lakers come in the locker room after the game. Post-game speech, Vogels, he'll sweat Vogels, sweat pouring down his face, stress about job pressure and all that. And then out comes Isaiah Stewart. Boom! And then it'll hold. That's that's what he should have done. Uh, but no, I thought two games was fair. Look, I gave up on, I, I don't know what it would take. Remember when, when Andrew Bynum, at the end of the Mavs-Lakers series in 2011, I believe, uh, when the Mavs were about to sweep them, took J.J. Barea out of the air with a forearm, and I believe Bynum was suspended the first five games of next season. I think under Adam Silver, you might have to actually stab somebody with a weapon to get suspended for five games. And I know that because when Nikola Jokic did what he did to Markeith Morris, and look, Mark Morris twins, you do not have to tell me that they're instigators. That quote-unquote take foul. Oh, just to, like Spo tried to be like, oh, it was a routine take foul. It was not a routine take foul. Marcus Morris shoulder-checked Jokic and kind of went knee-to-knee-ish with him. But what Jokic did from behind with the full force of a 300-pound body into a dude's back and neck who's had back and neck issues to get suspended one game for that, I was like, well, they're just not they're just not going to discipline players at all anymore. And two games for, for this, I thought was fair. I don't know what you'd have to do to get fired. I don't know what you thought when Jokic did that. And I understand he didn't initiate it, but 
Markeith Morris turned his back. And you could argue, other people have argued to me, that turning your back after a shot like that is in a way, is sort of a cheap tactic in and of itself because it sends the message of, well, you can't retaliate against me. I turned my back. And if you do, it's a cheap shot by definition. I just don't think you can do do what Jokic did. One game. What did you think was – I thought he was going to get like three. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the stereotype of the NBA is nobody really wants to fight. And if the point of a punishment is deterrence, is there sort of a is there a moral hazard here? Do guys you know go after each other every day? I mean, this is interesting because it's two incidents in what less than a couple of weeks. So, are we going to get to the point where deterrence is needed? But I, I mean, that's always my explanation. I'm not, I'm not, I neither support nor nor not support that point of view. But I think that's sort of always why why there's been lenience is okay. These guys essentially don't. We don't need this major deterrence. Marky Morris hasn't played hasn't played since. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Are we at the point where deterrence is necessary, where the next one is going to be, um, you know, three, four, five games? Anyway, Stewart was like five, six games into his NBA career. And I remember it was a game against the Celtics in Detroit because my brain remembers these things for some reason. It doesn't remember my anniversary sometimes. It remembers these freaking things. He made a, a play on defense where he made like three – Boom, 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 rotations along the interior. And he's got long arms. He's not a jumper, but he's got long arms and he's tough as shit. And he made three really pinpoint rotations. And I and I texted a bunch of Detroit's people like, hey, I just want to make sure I'm interpreting this, this play correctly. Like, this looks like a hell of a six seconds of defense by Isaiah Stewart. And one of them got back to me and said, it, not by coincidence, like we showed him this exact clip that you that you have pinpointed and said this is what you can do defensively this is how much of a force you can be and just those stuff you hear about his devotion to it his yeah. film study how hard he works to the get better takes, the guy takes notes at every film session there I you mean, go this, this i mean that's so again i'm i'm glad the one thing the one silver lining is is if the league now knows who this guy is or fans of the league that's a good thing because he's he's really fun to watch um you know in an era where we don't really watch big men for any fun and he's a low, he's a low first round pick who you know had dabbled in shooting jump shots which is the sexy thing for all big men to do and has kind of stopped doing that because they weren't going in very much so like you said he's sort of a garbage man on offense which means he's got to do everything else at an a plus level all the little things which means yes he's gonna box your ass out on a free throw rebound on the off chance the 15 percent chance the 20 percent chance that it's a miss and the 20 percent chance within that that the miss comes to his area of the floor he's gonna be ready for that because if it happens and he's not ready for it he's going to hear about it in a way that other people, other players are not going to hear about it because that's his job. So that's the end of my Isaiah Stewart-LeBron thing, unless you have some. It was quite a visual, though. It was the, the blood. And blood makes everything more interesting. No, it was like, I mean, again, I remember that, like, Julio Cesar Chavez match with De La Hoya where it was just, like, blood everywhere. I, I don't, I assume De La Hoya won that fight? I think so. They played, and, I think they fought twice. And, like, I, I can remember the blood, and I don't even remember the outcome. Well, usually what happens in boxing is that, like, these super fights happen when one of the guys is really old and over the hill. So I assume that's what happened to Chavez is that De La Hoya fought him when he was, like, 40. Anyway, enough boxing talk because that's all I got is box. That's all I got for boxing. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes! Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. The other big event of the week was the Sacramento Kings fired Luke Walton after a 6 and 10 or 6 yeah, 6 and 10 start, promoted Alvin Gentry to interim Head coach, interim head coach Alvin Gentry is just how he shall be referred now from here on out on this podcast. Interim head coach Alvin Gentry. Um, I don't know. Was, I mean, hasn't Gentry like achieved Alvin levels? I mean, is there? I mean, Alvin it's just Adams. funny you, how like, he. It's Alvin. He just keeps getting these jobs, and he got another one, and so he's now the head coach of the Kings. Um, the Kings are under enormous pressure from ownership to make. The play-in tournament, uh, which counts in some people's eyes as making the playoffs, um, not my eyes. And, of course, uh, a couple of things happened. Look, everyone has made the joke uh, uh, about how fitting it is that in Luke Walton's last game as head coach, the game had to be delayed for 20 minutes because a courtside fan vomited and just really let it fly. I mean, you watch the video. The guy's making absolutely no effort to get out of the way of his own vomit to hide his own vomit, to catch any of his own vomit, whether with his hands or his clothing. He just bends over. There's the floor. It's o- He knows, like, it's over for me. There's no going back at this point. I'm vomiting on television, on the court of a basketball. Imagine how much you have to vomit, how urgently you have to vomit, if in that moment you're like, yep, I'm, I'm doing it. It's just, it's just coming out now, and there's nothing I can do. And actually... As pithy and funny as the jokes are, it almost kind of scares me because it makes me believe that there is actually some divine or spectral force that is cursing the kings and conspiring from above in ways that we cannot understand uh, nor control to make them an endless joke in the NBA because it's, it's like it's scary how appropriate it is. I, I'm actually a little bit frightened. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm more of a materialist, and I think these things are real, and, and there are reasons for them. I mean, so so kind of small points and big points. I mean, one small point is, I mean, how many times do we need to see that a shotgun marriage between a new GM and an incumbent coach doesn't work? And in fact, if you go to the disastrous teams, right, like like New Orleans, um, Alvin was inherited, and it's by the way, this is not a commentary on the incumbent coach. It's it's a commentary on the dynamic, right? They get Gentry, they kind of lose a season, and then there you go. Minnesota, um, you know, Ryan Saunders is the incumbent. New GM goes in. Yeah, let's try the season. Orlando, like a couple years ago with like Steve Clifford, great coach. But Weltman comes in and like it, it never works. It never works. Even in Toronto, 
you know, where it did work for a while, right? Like Dwayne Casey under Masai Jiri. Um, there was, that was always sort of a little bit of a source of strain. Um, and so that, that's number one. But look, the problems in Sacramento run so much deeper than the fact that Monty McNair was handed Luke Walton. And they're going to, the next move, the, the replacement in, in that search is going to be a problem because, you know, the question is who, if the question is who can succeed as the next head coach of the Sacramento Kings, like Kenny Atkinson, Doug Christie, Carol Lawson, Red Orbach, like the answer is none of them, right? Like the conditions aren't there to succeed. It doesn't matter. And like, and this is going to be an impossible task for Monty McNair, right? Because everyone thinks the job of the GM is to draft, trade, populate a roster, use the cap strategically, you know, whatever. It's in Sacramento, the job is to manage ownership in the apparatus around him, which is really unfortunate because that's a dumb thing for a GM to have to do. This is the most difficult part of Monty McNair's job because they don't teach this in GM school. You know, the art of cultivating trust from delusional people of obscene wealth. They don't teach you how to curry favors with those gatekeepers. I would, ta- I would take that course, by the way. That was a very good course title that you just spat out on the fly there. What, what was it? The art of managing expectations from delusional people, you know, people with, with, with crazy wealth, right? Like, um, but like, here's the thing. They don't teach you how, you know, to deal with the gatekeepers and the conciliaries. Um, what they want you, what needs to happen, and this is going to be, look, Monty's drafted well. Uh, you know, I don't love the Bogdan, you know, walking, whatever. It, it, however you feel about him as a strategist, his job is going to be judged on how well can he sell ideas to ownership and making them think that they're ideas that emanated from ownership, right? Like it's jujitsu. It, it's 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 the ability to kind of sell owners on ideas. I mean, remember, I'm mean, talking like the late Dan Fagan once said, and we were talking about a move a team made and i said well the owner didn't let the gm do it and he's like then the owner i mean then the gm's terrible because the job of the gm is to manage the owner and like so what mcnair would should say would he you know if there was truth serum and, and there was no filter would be like hey given your disastrous results at choosing coaches like why don't you go drift around on a boat and let me handle this because like you know it, it's and it's also not just a bad it's not just a bad idea for the owner to make a call on a hire, not just because he's clueless. It also signals to everyone, most of all the incoming coach, that the GM can be undermined. That, that if you want something, you can bypass the front office and go right to the owner. Uh, and, and this happens all the time in Sacramento. Remember when George Carl suspended DeMarcus Cousins? And again, we can debate whether he should have. We don't know really what happened. But the bottom line is there was a decision that was made. Vivek comes in. And overrides it, right? Like, like that's the kind of stuff that happens in Sacramento. So, like, who can succeed there? Nobody. Not until the decision-making apparatus changes. Not until there's a chain of command that makes sense. And it's why no agent wants to place his client there, right? Like, it, it's it's going to continue to be that way. And I don't care who the hell you get. Like, it, it's just it's not going to work until that condition is reversed. Look, do I think Luke Walton is a is a good NBA coach? And by that, I mean a top 10 to 15 NBA coach. The evidence suggests probably not. Probably do I not. He, do I think he's a bad NBA coach? I don't I don't know. I don't think so. Look, the bottom line, like I will say, you watched this team over the last couple of seasons. You just were never sure what they were about. Like you just have to have a fundamental founding value system. We run. Our defensive scheme is 
X because of reasons X, Y, and Z. And the Kings never had that. They played like puzzlingly slow a couple of years ago, Luke's first year. Their defense has been an absolute train wreck for two seasons running. They had one defense coordinator last year, Rex Columbia, and he's now in Detroit. They have a new one this year, Mike Longabardi. It's not working with him either. You're never quite sure what the intent of the scheme is supposed to be. It just so like that to me does fall on the head coach. Like if you want to like the fact that they just had no fundamental principle of like this is what we're about, that falls on the head coach. But if you want a symbol, a human symbol of why Luke Walton is out of a job, the human symbol is Marvin Bagley, who was out of the rotation all year, uh, whose dad is always tweeting bad stuff about the team and demanding trades on Twitter, who they finally put back in the rotation but play him at power forward which, where he's just an absolute disaster on both ends of the floor. And, of course, uh, for reasons that no one quite will articulate completely on the record, although Vlade has done it a little bit, they picked him over Luka Doncic, who's going to be a top 20 player all time in NBA history if he stays healthy. And just like, like I don't, we don't need to go retrace the history. The Kings have picked in the lottery for a gazillion years, and it's just one bad pick after another. And you can sit here and tell me, well, they didn't really, other than Bagley, they picked fifth where they got Fox or worse, and it's a crapshoot, blah, blah. Yeah, if it's a crapshoot, even at five, six, seven, eight, if it's a crapshoot to get a star, which it is, if you're in the damn thing every year, you've got to get a pick just not wrong. And they, and some of the picks they got wrong, like Collie Stein and this, like you look down below and it's the next four or five picks are really bad and it's defensible and it's and all that. You just got to get something right. The one they got closest to right was DeMarcus Cousins. Then that situation goes sour in a million different directions. Then they trade him. What'd they get for him? Buddy Heald, who they're dying to trade right now, almost traded to the Lakers in the offseason, can't trade. And one lousy pick, which became Zach Collins, which they turned into Justin Jackson and Harry Giles. Harry Giles is gone. Justin Jackson, they turned into Harrison Barnes, which is a really good trade. And then they paid Harrison Barnes a lot of money, which is, I think, was smart and also indicative of how they have to build their team. You just can't be in Sacramento where, as you said, you're never going to get your first choice of free agent ever. Ever. It's not happening. You're not doing it. You cannot build through free agency. You have to hit the draft not only to get good players, but to get good trade stuff. And they just haven't done that. And Bagley is sort of the human symbol. We don't even have to, it's it, you know, you know, recite all the names. Um, but it is interesting to think about. Like two years ago, Kevin, in in like March 2019, so more than two years ago, it looked like they were. On an interesting track, Fox was an ascending star. Heald was playing well. Bagley and Giles were playing some together, and it looked like, okay, there's some kind of outlines of an interesting modern. Both guys can shoot a little bit and maybe pass and switch on defense, and Bogdanovich was coming into his own, and there was this feel of, like, we're coming across a style that works for us. We, we kind of we're, were maybe better than the summer parts. And what happened? They fired Dave Yeager. Yeah. Because whenever a coach starts winning, they f fire him. Starting with Mike Malone, which was egregious and inexplicable the day that it happened. And they've been spiraling from here. And now, two years later, some of that cast remains. Some of it has gone by the wayside. And it's like, where are they going from here now? And they drafted Halliburton. That's a good pick. Mitchell might be a good pick. It's like, where are they going? No, I mean, the 18-19 team was a blast. I watched a ton of them. Again, defensively, it wasn't great. I think they were like 20th. Um, but by the way, that's not 27th. That's not 28th. They were a good offensive team. They were crafting an identity. 
Uh, and even defensively, like, they played the gaps. Like, it wasn't, you know, they were young. And they felt like they were on a path to somewhere. But there's always going to be palace intrigue. Nobody can make it work. They, they, they inject personnel, their, you know, coaching personnel with paranoia. And so everyone gets, everyone's in a defensive crouch in Sacramento. Everyone's protecting their, their sort of their influence. And it's really weird. Um, having spent a lot of time there and, and again, I think, yeah, I, I, look, would Jaeger have succeeded? I mean, I, I, look, I think tactically he's the best coach they've had in, in ages. Um, but again, I just, I wonder if anyone can truly succeed. And it's like, you know, I wonder, I wonder for Monty Mayer, who has pretty good taste in basketball players, really bright guy. Um, but again, that's not even the job in Sacramento because the job of the GN is to, you know, have to essentially manage up, manage diagonal, diagonally, like manage all the way to business ops. Like there's so much messy, like interpersonal stuff there. And it, and it, and it starts at the top, right? Ownership uh, and, and, you know, go his obsession with the warriors, you know, which is again, part of the, part of the Walton thing, uh, you know, play this way, you know, haggling with Michael Malone about coaching style. If you're an owner and you're haggling with lifelong coaches about coaching style, go away. Go to Peter Holt's, like, like castle in San Antonio. We don't even know what that guy looked like, right? Like, like if you're arguing with your coaches, you're losing, right? You know nothing. And, and again, just the sheer arrogance of people who feel like because they've succeeded in other facets of life, they know how to do this. Like, is basketball exceptional? Like, probably not. I'm sure the same management principles preside one way or the other. But, like, that's where it starts. And until that happens, I, it's funny, Zach, I was texting with some minority owners who sold their shares um, to Vivek in September. And, and there is a degree of schadenfreude. They're laughing their asses off. And, you know, because how many, how many, 40 million over the last several years and, you know, salaries paid out after guys got fired. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. Like they are always paying two coaches. What's your worst ever vomiting story? You're, you're just your least pleasant vomiting story of all time. I mean, I've never had like a scene of, I mean, I've vomited, but like it was, there was never like a projectile on a like in college or on an NBA floor or like on a tour of the white house. I, I don't have any sort of grand vomiting. It's not something I do a lot. I've been fortunate like a food poisoning and stuff like that. It's it's, I'm, I'm, this is boring. I have no glorious story. I, uh, I once vomited in the sink of a four seasons Manhattan bathroom during a lunch with an NBA agent because of combination of food poisoning. And that morning we had gotten some, Somewhat frightening news about uh, our our daughter. My wife was pregnant, and the sonogram revealed something not great. I think all of that mixed together. I got up and I said, "I think I I have to go to the bathroom." The stall was occupied, and there was just there was no waiting. There was no escape. There was nothing else in the sink. I cleaned up the sink. I walked out, and I told this very powerful NBA agent, "I have to go home immediately." And I barely made it home. And that is my. And I also I left the. Were there others in the bathroom? There's someone who heard it, but the, whoever was in the stall was committed to being in that stall the entire time that I was doing. I was not getting out. It was like, oh, I'm going to read my read on my phone. And this agent still gives me crap about it every time. I also had to flee. This is one of those flashball members. I had to flee the theater during the 1990 film Nuns on the Run to, to go 
still vomit in the bathroom of the movie theater. I don't know why. Was Nuns on the Run good? Why was I seeing Nuns on the Run at age 12? I don't know. Like, Nuns on the Run, like, I, I, I only remember Rabbis on the Lamb. I mean, I don't, Nuns on the Run, I don't even know the movie. So, Nuns uh, on the Run. I, I think it was Nuns on the Run. I, I remember it being Nuns on the Run. Anyway, um, so. Eric in, Idle. Yes. So we're talking about, was this part of like the Monty Python family? I don't films? know. I don't know. Okay. Um, in, in March 2019, People with the Kings dared to whisper, maybe we could be the next Nuggets where it's like we grew it with our own draft picks. We found this mix of guys who kind of complement each other and they play the same style and it, it's kind of clicking. Like, why can't that be us? And it didn't sound like sheer lunacy at that time. Obviously, the big difference was the Nuggets already had a first-team All-NBA-level player in Nikola Jokic, a tentpole superstar. The Kings did not have that. Their hope was that De'Aaron Fox would be that for them. And the story of this season has been that De'Aaron Fox has just been bad. Like, he's, he's shooting badly. Uh, his defense has, I think, actually gotten worse, and it was never that great to begin with. And I'm a big De'Aaron Fox fan. I think he's a good player. But this has been um, not great. And, and, you know, you hear all the time talking to people within the league, you know, the Kings have publicly said we're not offering Fox or Halliburton for Simmons. Like, we're out. And you hear people say, well, what if they did offer Fox for Simmons? Like, you know, the Sixers would have to think about that, right? I think – I'm not sure the Sixers would think that hard about it right now. Honestly, I think they would say, hold up. We, we have a small, fast guard uh, named Tyrese Maxey who's outplaying De'Aaron Fox and is on a rookie contract. I don't think we need two of them. I don't know if that's a great fit with Joel Embiid. Like, I'm not sure that's like a – I'm not sure if I'm the Sixers. I wouldn't say – can we have Halliburton in some stuff instead? Because I think that might be a better fit. Like the Fox thing, it needs to turn around soon because if he doesn't become an all-star and someone who's regularly in the all-star conversation, the Kings are just, I don't know where they're going other than just picking in the lottery over and over again. You know, I'm going to buy the dip on Fox. Like there's a player there and speed doesn't slump. Um, I, you know, I'm pretty certain he's not a 25% three point shooter. I don't think he's great. Um, so he's, funny. Ca- he's career 31, man. Like, right. it's not- but it, you go back to 18, 19, right? Like I think he was 37% or so, um, you know, and, and, and that was such a fun year. You know, the, the, the sad thing about that year was though he didn't play poorly when Barnes came in that trade, like the juju kind of went away. Like, like they, they ceased to be the team I was loving on league pass for the first four or five months of the season or for three or four months. And, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I would buy the dip on, on Fox and, and look, I, I don't think where you are is any excuse. And I have no Intel that tells me Darren Fox is unhappy in Sacramento. I just assume that everybody's unhappy in Sacramento, which by the way, is a great town. I've enjoyed spending time there. So I, there could also uh, be new, there could also be new contract pressure. Um, yeah. Now you're the guy, um, on a team that's starving for success. You mentioned Bogdanovich before. Let's clear up a couple of things. It's it's a pop. So most of these mistakes, obviously, they predate the Monty McNair era. The one he gets hammered with is, well, you got nothing for Bogdanovich. Here's what happened in the Bogdanovich thing, according to sources I've talked to all around it. Um, on the clock leading to the offer sheet, the Hawks say to the Kings, we're going to hit him with an offer sheet. Obviously, I got to tell you how much. We're going to hit you with, we're going to hit him with an offer sheet. Or let's just make it smooth. We'll do we'll do a sign and trade, and we'll give you the Oklahoma City Thunder 2022 first round pick that we have, which is top 14 protected 
and it will convert into two second-round picks. So it's as fake as a fake first-round right. pick has ever been. It's two second-round picks. The Kings, according to what I've heard, digested that and said, hmm, that's not very good. Is two seconds better than nothing? Sure. But we, want, we also might match the offer sheet. So we might call your bluff. Maybe you're not even going to make an offer. Maybe you're, you're, you're just faking it because you don't want to tie up your cap space. Even if you're not, at least we get to see what the offer sheet is. Maybe it's a number we'll match. If it's not and we let him go for nothing, that's worth two first-round picks. There's two second-round picks, rather, not gotten as the price of that. Right. And I don't think that's, like, egregious. Like, would you rather have two second-round picks for Bogdanovich? Sure. No, look, I don't you, think you it's want to see what's behind. Yeah, you want to see what's behind door number three. Yeah, and by the way, I, I think intelligent people can disagree about this. I don't, I don't think it was like, ah! I mean, I'm a fan of the player. Um, I thought it fit for them. But, you know, I, I don't think it's a capital crime, no. And the Barnes thing, you know, could they have gotten two first-round picks for Barnes last year? Maybe. Probably two protected firsts, like two not great firsts or a first and an interesting young – a not great first and an interesting young player. I think probably if they had taken some of those talks to the finish line, that was on the table. They could get that for him now. Like I, I don't think that they – by not getting something for him then, they have forfeited the opportunity to move on from him. They also love Harrison Barnes, and he's been the best player on their team this season. Him or Rashawn Holmes, who's an underrated little gem of a player. Um, any final thoughts on, on the Kings? Uh, you know, it's just it, – at some point – at some point, it'll turn around. I right. just don't know when. Look, they're they're right now. They're eleventh. They're gonna, they're on track to be eleventh in the West, which means you're a few wins away from being tenth, which means you're a few wins away from being in the play-in. Hooray! Yeah, I'm actually curious to see what they do about about Barnes. Um, you know, I, I and acknowledging what you said, which is he is their most consistently productive player. Um, but at a certain point, uh, I, I mean, you get delusion doesn't yield good results. Um, and yeah, they might be 10th and they might be 9th, so what? A fitting bookend to the vomiting is that they lost in Alvin Gentry's first game to a Sixers team, missing all five starters. All five. They started five backups on the road in Sacramento in the new coach, the dead coach bounce game, and won with five backups. I mean, come on. Win that game. Will you please win that game? Anyway, okay. Uh, the two t- other teams we wanted to discuss were the two surprise teams-ish in the East, uh, currently second and third in the East behind the Nets, the Chicago Bulls and the Washington Wizards. And, and the discussion I really wanted to have is what surprised you and how sustainable is it? And fittingly, both of them lost last night, the night before we record this podcast, including the Bulls getting absolutely shellacked at home by the uh, just – endlessly puzzling Indiana Pacers, who I cannot figure out and have given up figuring out. Bulls were on a back-to-back. Alex Caruso was out. Excuses abounded, etc. They still got yeah. shellacked. Kevin, that loss by itself, one game showing you that even 20 games in, wild things can happen with stats. Dropped the Bulls from 7th to 13th in offense yeah. and from 7th to 10th in defense. So the Bulls are 12-6. and six. They're a delight to watch. I would say if there is – and look, I had the Bulls between 7th and ninth in the East before the season. I was Luke, I was mid-tier on the Bulls. You had extreme Bulls skeptics who were like, 
play-in at best. You had extreme Bulls optimists who were like, this is a top-four roster. I had I had the top six in the East as Brooklyn, in some order, Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Miami, Boston, Atlanta, Philly, TBD, depending on Simmons and some other things. Next to Knicks, Bulls, uh, I appear to have been perhaps too low on the Bulls. I think even my mid-tier take was a little too low. That said... In the East right now, you're two losses from dropping from second to ninth. So lots of stuff is still in play. If I had to think of an interesting thing to talk about with the Bulls, a, a red flag, I would think that 13th on offense is interesting, particularly when you dig in. They're 16th in half-court offense and 26th, according to Unpredictable, in points per possession after made baskets, which would make you think when they can't get out in transition – how is this team going to score? Now, defensively, they've been very good, but 10th is closer to average than it is to elite. So I don't know that we still, as exciting as this team was, and when they win, like when they just just ran all over the Lakers in L.A., they look like world beaters. But I think you zoom out, 12-6, and six, they've gotten some good wins, their schedule toughened up. I just don't think we know for sure quite how good they are, but they're good. They're better than you th- and you and I thought they were going to be. I think. Yeah, I have them as one of my more confusing teams, with the sense that I, like you, I had a appraisal, but then every I kind of pulled back and said, "Look, there is a lot of shot creation here." Now, as you pointed out, it actually hasn't really materialized, despite their success. Um, they're a little mid rangey, as you would imagine, with DeRozan as a high usage guy and Levine uh, is firing step backs. Um, Levine, I, I do this. I've been doing this for I, the guy who almost made my All NBA ballot, and I still always go back and forth because, like, all I did was grow up with a kid's name, Zach Levine. Um, I mean, I must have known seven of them, including summer camp. Uh, I think if, for kids born in 1974, it might be the most common Jewish name combination. Um, that and like like Scott Gold. Uh, so you know they're getting it to the rim at a decent clip. I don't love what they're getting every night, I and mean, that's the one thing. As I'm watching this 12 and 16. Um, too many ISOs for Zach where he gets nowhere, fires up the iffy shots. Um, you know, they, you know, if the, among the 14 guys in the league who have 100 direct ISOs so far this season, only Tatum is less efficient. Um, that said, I think, you know, Donovan is, it, he, I like him at the controls. Like there, there was there was an interesting thing here. I, I love, you know, Javante Green as the glue guy when Vooch was in there. Vooch goes into protocol and he does something really interesting. You know, he puts Caruso into play with Bradley and that combo is working, right? Like they win both games in Los Angeles. They win at Denver. Nobody ever wins at Denver, typically, traditionally. Um, but then you saw what happened against Indiana, right? Like like Caruso's on the shelf. You go with Kobe White and, and sort of the card house, the house of cards falls. Um, my biggest concern, Zach, is front court depth. You know, you've got Vooch, you've got Tony Bradley. Williams is out. They've been rebounding okay. And like, but now what else do you have? Can you steal a few minutes with Elise Johnson? I don't know. Um, well, but, Derek Jones Jr. has been huge for them the last yes. couple weeks as a backup center, playing his absolutely perfect role, which is yes. just roll to the rim and dunk. Okay, but I mean, but he is six foot five, and, and I, I think defensively, you know, look, he he was maximized defensively in Miami. I, I think, think with his that. arms, he's like nine foot eleven. But yes, he might be six foot right. five. But I, I mean, look, we're, we're disguising. If Draymond Green can, we can call a center at six five. You know Chuck Hayes, you know in his tuchus, it was a center. But but look, I think at some point they probably have to go out and get a Tristan Thompson. You know I'd love to see them get Derek Favors from OKC. By the way, not Intel. I just they're going to have to go out and get a big, um, someone who can provide them in a playoff uh, situation because uh, I don't think you can do it exclusively with Vooch 
and, and Tony Bradley, you know, both of them have been great. But um, yeah, they're so, they're, by the way, still my most confusing team because I like it. Um, there's a ton of shot creation, but to your point, they're just a lot of gummy possessions, which is unusual for a team with that kind of shot creation. Um, but they're, they are ISO heavy and they will be. They're incredible in transition on both offense and defense. But and they're I not think, in transition very often. No, but they're 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 incredible when they get here. They probably do need to get in, in transition more, although I'm not sure how many more hit aheads Lonzo can throw to yeah. Levine, which is just delightful to watch. Uh, but anything with speed, they're just a fast team. And that that it sounds obvious, but A, it really stands out when you see them in person. And like especially compared to a team like the Lakers. I mean, they were just running circles around the Lakers who are old. Um, but their transition defense is really good because mm -hmm. they just get – they're fundamental. They get back and they're fast as hell. And just like I, they're playing Caruso on fours. Like Caruso guarded Julius Randle the other day and did well. Then they'll they'll put Lonzo on fours sometime if Caruso's in foul trouble or Caruso's not in the game. And Lonzo just – he's got such quick hands. He fights. And the other thing is their speed – They've, be, they've been a really good help and ro rotate team. Yeah. They just nailed it. And Lonzo, if you watch Lonzo, a fun thing to do is watch Lonzo on defense. He is so smart. He moves around the floor in concert with the ball. He does not miss rotations. But more than that, he kind of mixes up how he helps in ways that confuse the offense. Like some, When he sees Caruso needs help in the post against a guy like Randall, sometimes he'll double late particularly like late shot clock doubles. He plays the clock really well. He'll double late. Sometimes he'll double on the catch so fast that A, the entry pass is in the air and Lonzo is already essentially double teaming the guy or about to. And so fast that it alarms the guy on the catch because he can't even see when he catches the ball. So I, I, I think their defense, it's a little too turnover dependent. For me to feel super excited about it, the rebounding there down to 18th. You mentioned that playing small is is that's always going to be a challenge. Um, but I I buy this team as as a good defensive team. To me, the interesting question is the offense and the half court offense. And obviously, Vooch is huge for that opening up the floor, pick and pop threes, a little post game. And he was not shooting well before going into health and safety protocols. I think he will alleviate. A lot of those issues. Interestingly, um, the DeRozan plus bench lineups are absolutely killing it. And a lot of those had Lonzo um, before the Vucevic thing forced him to change the rotation. The Levine plus Vuce plus no other of the four, the big four starters lineups have not been doing that well. But I, I, I think I'm very interested in their offense because I think the Bulls, as hot as they've been, I, you know, I, I still. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if they ended up being sixth or fifth in the East. I don't know quite know how, or even seventh. I don't know. I think they're good, though. I think they're legitimately good. Yeah, I mean, it's a question of how defensively, how big can they actually be? You know, watching them against Julius Randle the other day, um, like Caruso opens on Randle, and and you know what? Like, he's taking spinning fadeaways over Caruso. Who's he's really settled. Sturdy. He's settled. Yeah. yeah. And, and then Ball comes in, or not comes in, but he, he, he goes over, and, and he doesn't get much of what he wants against uh, him either and um but it is it, it's just you know four guards in vooch um and it, it is that's the other funny thing is, is you pointed out like you it is a defensive riddle but it's also an offensive riddle um well, they just have some they have a lot of iso guys the four guards thing 
I mean, there are lineups where you're like, man, this is like, it's like Ball plus Kobe White, who's back, plus Ayo, Ayo, rather Ayo Desumnu, um, who I like Ayo. He gets around screens. He's a, he's a competitor on defense. He gets skinny, he gets around screens. He's not afraid to take shots. I like him. And Caruso or Ball is like, man, they're really playing four guards. But you look at it, like, at least they're playing four two guards, like four legit, like Kobe White is 6'5". Caruso is 6'5", or something like that. Um, these yeah, guys Javante are, as well, right? Like, yeah, these guys are big. DeRozan and Levine can play three and have played a lot of three. Like, there at least, there isn't, like, Lonzo, I think, is 6'6". Six, six. Like, these are big guards. They have size. They're good rebounders. Like, if you're going to play a lot of guards, these are the kind of guards you want to play to survive um, on defense. The other thing is, like, you mentioned juggling the matchups. It's a little dumb thing, but as soon as Randall went out of the game and Toppin went in the game... They shifted assignments so DeRozan was on Obi Toppin, and the guards, Caruso and Ball, could then go defend the guys they actually should be defending, Derek Rose or Kemba Walker, Alec Burks, the dangerous guys. And to me, I think this is, you know, when, when Billy Donovan was coaching in Oklahoma City, the first couple years were all Russ, and first Russ and KD, then Russ, Russ, Russ. And everyone was like, I don't know what Billy Donovan stands for as a coach. And then they had the one year with Shea and CP3, where he leaned into that three-guard lineup with Dennis Schroeder. And now he's playing this style with the Bulls and just getting these little decisions right in every game. And I think what Billy Donovan stands for as a coach is you have some coaches who are dogmatic and you got to fit their style or not. He will adapt to his personnel, think outside the box ways that fit his personnel, with the one exception is his teams tend to be good on defense and fiercely competitive. If you don't do those things, you might not play. I think he's emerging as a really quality NBA coach. I, I love Donovan. It's funny when we talk to him, you know, it, it's a real, it, it's a procedural talk. Like what, what he, he'll say is, okay, here's the challenge, right? Like Williams, you know, is out or whatever, we have size. And then he kind of diagnoses potential solutions and then he offers the best one, right? Like, and, and I, I've made note of this in conversations. It's just, he's a thinker. And again, like, like he pushes, he's, and he loves press pushing buttons. Like I, not on personalities. I mean, he loves sort of, you know, having to make, you know, the lesser of challenging decisions. And, and I think it's, he's doing a great job. Um, Damar has been just off the charts mm -hmm. and including his passing, which has taken a leap incrementally almost every year. This is the best he's ever been. And Lonzo just always, always is doing fun stuff, setting flare screens, doing all this fun stuff. Big picture. They're interesting. And they actually make for an interesting comparison with the Kings. You know, they reached this point where they make the Jimmy Butler trade, which is a massive organizational pivot. We don't think we can win with Butler plus Miritich plus all our picks plus cap space, you know, and, and then they do that and their non-Butler rebuild kind of fails. Like they're not really going anywhere, right? They clearly didn't have a lot of faith in Wendell Carter Jr. or Lowry Market and Chris Dunn washed out. Go back even further, Denzel Valentine, Tony Snell, the Doug McDermott trade. Like they just, after Jimmy Butler, they didn't get a lot out of the draft and the return from that trade ended up really just being Levine. And you reach this point as a mediocre to bad team who's already torn down once where you have a player like Levine, his contract is coming up and you have a choice. It's like, do we tear down again? Are our fans going to tolerate that? We tear down again? Or do we try to get better and hit lightning in a bottle where we trade for the right guys, we sign the right guy, 
and everything meshes together and we get good. Maybe we don't win a championship. Maybe we don't even make a conference finals. But we get good and exciting and there's honor in that. And oh, by the way, we didn't mortgage like the entire future to do it. And that's what they shot for. That's a decision they made. So we believe Zach Levine's an all-star. We believe it's legit. We're going to try to build around him. Yeah, they gave up Thad Young and a pick for DeRozan, signed him to more money than that. I would have paid him. Guess what? He's playing great. Lonzo, home run deal, right? Vooch, two firsts in Wendell Carter Jr. That's the one that I thought was too steep at the time. We'll see. But they've built a good team. The Caruso signing was a great signing. And 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 there's there's honor in being good. And they're good and they're exciting. And and I and and that's the kind of decision that I, I bring up the Kings because we're on teardown. I, I mean, I don't know if they've ever, they've never really had anything to tear down. They've never really built anything. There's just sort of been a continuous fire burning all the time that they can't put out. But they're going to face the same thing of like, do we go backwards again? Do we trade Fox for picks? Are our fans going to tolerate that? And, I, and, and they're going to have to do the same thing the Bulls did, which is find a way to lift this team from 35 wins and say we can get better instead of getting worse. It's not easy to do. No, I, I mean, I think the hardest thing in the league is getting from, oh, we're a promising 34-win team that, it, that's fun to watch and now starts, is starting to win home games to, like, very respectable. That, that 35 to 45 is, I think, one of the toughest jumps in the league. Speaking of which, let's end by talking about the Washington Wizards who lost at home to the Charlotte Hornets. Their second straight loss to the Hornets. The East is just... I think there's 11 teams in the East right now who are 500 or better. This is a lot of fun. Just you don't know night to night who's going to beat who. The Wiz are 11 and six, third in the East, 19th on offense, fourth on defense, <laughs> fourth on defense, 10th in net rating. Uh, they have not had Rui Hachimura the whole season. Will his reintroduction soon help or hurt their team? We'll talk about that. They have not had Thomas Bryant. They've been missing Davis Bertans lately. He's coming back soon. Neither Dinwiddie nor Beal have played like lights out uh, for the season, and yet here they are, 11-6. and six. Uh, I think you can start wherever you want. I'll open the floor to you. To me, the most important question is, is this defense real? Because if this defense is real, the Wizards have a chance to hang around hang around if this defense is 11th or 12th instead of fourth or fifth i think you start getting into a territory where they're going to be fighting really hard even with this hot start to stay out of the play-in tournament and i know where i fall on this because I, I think their offense is average i think their offense is about what it is i think they're playing at about their right level right now the defense is the interesting part to me what say you so I, i've been trying to watch the defense and it's interesting. What the new mandate clearly is, is we're going to deploy the drop a lot more selectively. And basically, hello, guards, you got to contain the dribble. Like, and and it is it is a mandate. And they're kind of responding to it, you know? Like, they're third in the league in shot probability given up, right? Which is, you know, what would these guys you're playing shoot on, an, you know, if, if it was exactly a 50th percentile, if they were of, of average, you know, makes. Um, second in shot quality. So, I mean, something is working there. The funny thing is, you watch Gafford, and you're like, yeah, he's important, yet actually they've played their, and this is where I worry, they played their best defense with Montrez Harrell, which defies everything we've known about Harrell's career. Not that he doesn't work, but there's just not, you know, he he's not huge. He plays big. Um, he has been taken off the floor and has been deemed kind of unplayable at times. 
you know, in a in a lineup where you do need a more conventional five and rim protection. He doesn't do a lot of that. So if you're asking, hey, is, is there is there a little quicksand underneath? That would be the marker is, you know, are they actually a sub hundred defensive team per possession, 100 points, 100 possession team with friggin' Montrez Harrell at the five. And like, that would be my one red flag. I'm with you offensively. I actually think when Beal starts playing with Beal efficiency, they will be better. I think, you know, they're 19th now. I think they are, I think they're the 14th or 13th best offensive team. Um, and again, Beal has not been terribly efficient. Um, you know, Dinwiddie's interesting because I think we forget he's a really good pick and roll player. He can be a chucker at times. So I think you don't think of him as a practitioner in the half court. He's pretty freaking good. And if you look over the course of his career, he's been a really good pick and roll player. Um, he can take over a moment. Uh, he, he can hit big shots. And, um, you know, so I, you know, I really love their depth at guard. Um, but that's going to be the thing is can they find the right combos when Bertrand comes back, he'll be back soon, you know, with sort of stretch fours, fours disguised as fives, you know, can Gafford, you know, sustain them as, as a defensive stalwart in a starting lineup. Um, you know, KCP is good because he's versatile and he, they love him defensively and as Frank Vogel loved him defensively and, and he's really stabilized the wing for them. Um, but so is it, a, they're not the fourth. I don't, they're not going to stay at four. But I'm with, I think they can hang around the 8, 9, 10. We'll see. Um, but the one thing that gives me pause is those Montrez numbers, right? Like, like I'm sorry, you, you can't play Trez at the 5 all season long and have a 97 per 100 defense. Well, the the Thomas Bryant was a critical part of their future. I mean, yeah. they signed him to a big deal. He, he tore his ACL. He should be coming back at some point soon-ish. Um, it's probably, I don't know when it is. It's not that soon. It's not that soon. That gives him three centers who probably all consider themselves starting centers. They also have a team with, you know, all the fours they have. You mentioned Bertans, Hachimura, Kuzma has been great for them. Oh, you know, I didn't even mention Kuz. I mean, Kuz. this is crazy. First of all, By the way, what a useful basketball player. I mean, yeah, I, he's, he's just a good player. He's a good player. By the way, really speedy and, and, and smart defensively. Um, and uh, and Bertans, that's and, and Avdia, that's guard four. the perimeter. I mean, that's what's crazy about Kuz. I didn't think he played a damn bit of defense his first two seasons. And like, I love this guy defensively now. So you watched them play last night. The Hornets finished the game with Bridges at the five, and you start thinking, but the Wiz, when they're fully healthy, they're kind of tailor made to play without a traditional center. And yet they have three centers who are all good. Two of whom are playing well right now, splitting minutes. It's like I wonder if this team. I wonder if they're going to get frisky at the trade deadline. Try and put some put some of these players together, put a pick in, see what they can get, consolidate their roster a little bit. Just something to something to put in the old pocket for the trade deadline. If you asked if you had to ask me to predict the Wizards' final win total right now with them at 11 and 6 having exceeded expectations, I would probably say 45, 44 or 45. Like I don't think they're going to continue and that puts them at essentially a 500 pace. For the rest of the season. I think that's about what they are. Maybe I'm underestimating them. Um, Defensively, to Harrell's credit, he's rebounding at a career best level. And that's critical for them. They're fifth or sixth in defensive rebounding. And for them to hold steady like that is big. And as you mentioned, they're allowing the fewest threes in the league. And if you watch them, if you watch them play, you know, they're just a really well, Wes Unsell Jr. is in a good job. Like Gafford drops back on the pick and roll. All the other guys stay home on shooters. 
they they don't come. There's not big help in the paint. They got maybe a foot at the edge of the paint, but they're not going to give up open threes. If you look at the the tracking data, can measure um, how close defenders are to shooters. The Wizards have the shortest distance between their defender and guys shooting three point shots of any team in the league, and that tracks um, that tracks with with the eye test. And then they switch one to four a lot, right? If if the center is dropping back, they'll switch one to four. And and just like last night, it and in the last couple of games I've watched them, you see them against these set pieces. You know, the Spain pick and roll or the stack pick and roll. You hear the player, stack, stack, stack. Charlotte tries to spring the the old Spurs hammer play, which every team uses out of a timeout. They're calling it out right away. Hammer, hammer. Um, other other sort of decoy screens. They're just sniffing that. They're well prepared for everything. And I'll tell you who's really good defensively. Denny Avdia yeah, is, is embracing his role as a all-position stopper against the Heat. He'll guard Kyle Lowry. And then he'll guard Jimmy Butler, depending on the matchups. Last night, he guards Miles Bridges when he's the most dangerous guy. I'll spend some time on LaMelo Ball. He's blocking shots. He's protecting the rim. And you can tell from his reactions, he's starting to like defense a lot. And here's the crazy thing. I'm watching a game last spring, and Scotty calls timeout to yank him off the floor for blowing a rotation. Like, he was outright clueless at times. Completely lost and drifting there. If you had told, asked me, hey... If you say, hey, hypothetical, Avdia does not make it in the NBA, why? And I'll be like, because if you can piss off Scotty Brooks like that, you, you're you're defensively, you're probably, you're not long for the league. And that's what's been such a revelation is, I mean, literally a guy less than a year ago is being yanked off the floor for blowing rotations. Um, and that was all purpose. And they're not even getting like that lucky with opponent shooting. They just make you earn it, no. man. That's the, the, the biggest compliment I can, I can give the Wizards is, they're not going to beat themselves on either end of the floor. You're going to have to stop their offense. Like they they don't they don't make a lot of mistakes off. They don't have a lot of blunders on offense and you're going to have to make shots against them on defense. You're going to have to make a lot of tough mid-range shots against them too. They make they make you earn. I'm glad you brought up Dinwiddie because I think if you look at their starting five, which is Dinwiddie, Beal, Kuzma, Gafford, KCP. It's just like there's not a great passer in there. I think Beal's a good passer. Dinwiddie's a good passer. But what there are is one really dangerous dive man, four guys who can shoot, and four good passers. Like, all of those guys are good passers. All of their lineups have four good passers, four decent shooters, and they have some possessions where they're playing really unselfishly. There are some possessions where they look like Utah. Extra pass, drive, kick, extra pass. It's like, god damn, the Wizards are moving it. Yeah, and and again, when you have versatility, you can do that, right? Like this is where I think you know Kuz. Um, and by the way, like like Dinwiddie being a guy who can really break teams off the dribble, you know, I, I think he's gotten to be a pretty damn good passer. Um, in terms of, and, and again, what, what belies that is he can be a chucker, and we often kind of make the assumption that chuckers aren't necessarily, you know, that's in lieu of a, a selflessness born out of being a really good passer, but. But um, again, I, and I, I want to emphasize this, Beal is not playing up to Beal's standards yet. And he, here they are. And that's why I have, yeah, there's a downside defensively. They might not hang around at three, four, five. But I also think they're a better offensive team than I team. I, I just do. And, and Beal is defending well. Mm-hmm. Um, Avdia has the best net rating on the whole team. I love the Avdia-Kuzma combination at the forward spots. I think that looks nice. Um, and, you know, the other thing, they are... Um, I believe, toward the bottom in offensive rebounding. And, yeah, they're 22nd in offensive rebounding. The flip side of that is 
they do not up transition defense. They are a very disciplined transition defense team. They do not give up easy points. And that just those little things, again, like they're going to make you earn it. You're not going to get four easy baskets because they have bad floor balance with four guys along the baseline or they let people leak out because they're moaning at the refs or or admiring their own shots. They just they don't. Harrell had, I don't know if you watched their game last night, but did you see that sequence when Harrell was so tired? He I had was to watching, basically I was stop playing. In- I was at the Atlanta Hawks OKC game, so I did not get to see the Wiz last night. So Harold Harold had this sequence in the second half where he ran out and caught like a touchdown pass layup, beat everybody in transition, and made the and then sprinted all the way back, all the way end to end, and you could see. I mean, it was one of those sprints where it's like he is giving it. This is a full on like fifty yard dash sprint. Got back all the way to the basket. Gordon Hayward tried to lay up along the baseline. Trez went up with both hands, hit the backboard. Like he did the thing where he went for the block, missed, and hit the backboard. Hayward missed. Wiz get the rebound. Go the other way. Harold literally hands on knees, puffing and huffing and puffing along the baseline. Not going back on offense because he just gave everything he had after. And he had already been on the floor for like five or six minutes. It was an awesome. And you could see the bench see that he was tired and just stay like, come on, Trez, go, go. It was, it was awesome. They're really fun to watch. I think they're going to yep. hang around. By the way, Tommy Shepard just got a promotion and extension. Well-deserved to turn John Wall into this team in two trades mm-hmm. and come up pick neutral is just incredible. I think they're hanging around all year. The East, like I said, you know, don't get too high or low on your team in the East, unless you're the Nets or the Bucks, really, because you you're a two game losing streak away from being. We're in the play in. This is a fun season. I love the East right now, and, and long time coming, man. Um, I love the four o'clock games. I used to dread the four o'clock games being out west. It's like, all right, I'm getting the Pistons, like the old Hornets. Hey, I'm gonna go walk the dog. Kevin Arnovitz, enjoy Thanksgiving. We will have you back on soon to talk about all things around the league. You wrote on the Hornets a couple weeks ago. People should go read that. It's got a lot of juicy little details in there about Charlotte Hornets. Who, whoever, you know, just keep their 11 and 8 now. It looked like they were going to go into tailspin a little bit when they went out west and they came right back and bam, back over 500. Easy. And another fun watch. I highly recommend Charlotte Hornets basketball. It's fun. Without P.J. Washington, who's a big part of their team. He hasn't he hasn't played in, in ages, and uh, they're, they're fun to watch. All right, Mr. Arnovitz, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.